0: merry christmas from the lead on podcast this is jeff orge at gateway seminary once again talking with you about practical issues related to ministry leadership Uh, i'd like to take the podcast today to talk about christmas and offer some perspective on that and to uh, look at some current events in the light of the events of jesus's birth and see if we can't gain some encouragement as we go through the christmas season together Now, I'm sure that you are busy leading Christmas celebrations and Christmas activities and Christmas services, and it can be a very hectic and challenging time. Uh, But at the same time, it can be a rewarding experience of refreshing ourselves again about the birth of Jesus and renewing ourselves through reconsideration of what his life means in our lives. Christmas is one of those holidays that often has a lot of nostalgia attached to it. I know at our house we uh, bring out a box of Christmas decorations, and we've had some of them for 35, 40 years. We put them on the tree, and we talk about who who gave them to us or where they came from and those kinds of things. And we have nostalgic uh, uh, activities that we do around Christmas, things we've done for years and years and years uh... some kind of hokey things some kind of uh... uh... traditional things but you you know we're like every other family we've got our little habits and practices that take us back to a previous era uh, and we think about those things. And then there's also nostalgia, though, about Christmas, uh, thinking about, well, you know, wouldn't it be great to go back to a simpler time or back to a better time? Or as someone would say, maybe, you know, back to the good old days when, when we didn't have all this commercialism and we didn't have all this difficulty and challenge and hardship and chaos going on around us when Christmas happens. And I know that all those feelings are, are, um, are, are nice to, to wish, wish for, but quite honestly, uh, the good old days weren't that great. And the olden times uh, weren't that pristine. And in fact, the time when Jesus came uh, was a whole lot like the times we're living in today. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, You know, Jesus showed up in a world that was, uh, to put it in a technical term, messed up. Uh, Jesus came into a world that had uh, political turmoil going on. You know, there's some rulers mentioned in the story of Jesus' birth, in Luke 2 Augustus and Quirinius are mentioned. And over in Matthew 2, uh, Herod is mentioned. And of course, Herod is well known because he was the king who ordered the slaughter of the infants in an attempt to destroy Jesus when he was a baby. This Herod character was uh, an amazing uh, example of dysfunction and evil. I came across a summary of his life and family. I want to read a little bit of it to you here on the podcast. It's not that long, but it's really uh, quite detailed and interesting. Uh, as I'm reading it, you're, you're going to get lost in some of this because of all these names, but just listen for the main thrust of what Herod and his family were like. Herod the Great had ten wives. His first wife, Doris, a woman of obscure fa- from an obscure family in Jerusalem, bore him one son, Antipater, who took an active part in the events of Herod's reign, plotting against his younger half-brother's to secure the kingdom for himself. Herod, just before the capture of, capture of Jerusalem, by which he became king, married his second wife, the beautiful Miriamne. She bore him three sons, including Alexander and Aristobulus, and two daughters. Miriamne was then put to death in 29 B.C. About 24 B.C., Herod married another Miriamne, daughter of Simon. Herod also took to, his, to wife his two nieces, and three other women of various backgrounds. Aristobulus, his son, married his first cousin, Bernice, and became the father of five children, several of whom played an important role in history. Of these two young men, sons of the beloved Miriamne, Antipater, the firstborn son of Herod, was jealous. His jealousy was aroused against his half-brothers by the evident intention of his father to overlook his right as firstborn in their favor. He and his friend at court poisoned the mind of Herod against the boys. About, but about six, by about 6 B.C., Herod had three sons put to death, named Antipater his heir, and appointed Herod, son of the second Miriamne, next in succession. Antipater next accused Herod's sister, Salome, and her sons, Archilius and Philip, who were in Rome being executed of plotting the murder of Herod. But the crime charged against Salome was soon brought home to Antipater. He and his uncle, Pheroras. Herod's brother were accused of seeking the king's life. Are you following all this? These people are crazy. Ferorius died, but Antipater was cast into prison. Herod's suspicions were thereby aroused that Antipater had falsely accused Alexander and Aristobulus, who had already been executed, and he altered his will again, appointing Antipas to be his successor, and passed over Archelaus, the elder brother, and Philip as he, was, as he still held them in suspicion." Soon afterwards, he ordered his son Antipater to be slain and altered his will again, giving the kingdom to Archelaus. This was the leader named Herod, a wonderful family man. Besides this domestic history of the rise of the family to power and the intrigues among its members, there is the political history of Herod's reign. Herod sought to be for his own interest on good terms with the successive representatives of the warring factions into which the Roman people were then divided. He obtained a generalship from Sextus Caesar, a relative of the great Julius Caesar, and then after a time he gained the favor of Cassius, the great Caesar's assassin. Then he cast in his lot with Mark Antony, one of the murdered men's chief avengers. But this was not his last change of sides. About 41 BC, Herod was made tetrarch of Galilee by Antony. He now endeavored to further strengthen his position by the removal of rivals. So Herod called in 45 members of his rival faction and put them to death. Soon afterwards, Miriamne's brother Aristobulus, a boy of only 17, was drowned in a bath by Herod's orders. About 31 BC, her grandfather, although 80 years old, was put to death because he was perceived to be a threat. The murder of a wife's brother and her grandfather did not tend to increase her attachment to her husband. That's an understatement. And by variance between Herod and by Herod and Miriamne. It increased until it culminated at length in the queen being falsely accused and executed. The birth of Jesus Christ took place at the close of Herod's life, after he had removed his rivals from other families by violent deaths and when his domestic troubles were at their height. He had slain his sons Alexander and Aristobulus and and more recently Antipater for plotting against his life, and now he was told that another threat was arising a child of David's line, had been born king of the Jews. The slaughter of the infants happened at a time and place to become a method, of, uh, and by a method that, that revealed the depth of Herod's propensity for bloodshed. It was one of the last acts of his life. He felt that he was dying and that there would be rejoicing when he passed away. There would be no rejoicing when he passed away. So therefore he told his sister Salome and her husband Alexis, to shut up the leading Jews in this theater at at Jericho and put them to death whenever he died, that there might be a mourning at the time of his death. Well, the good news is when he died, the prisoners were set free, and there was relief instead of lamentation about his death. That is Herod. Jesus came into a world that was messed up politically, marked by political turmoil. We think about what's going on in our world today, and we see that, G- that we, we still live in this same kind of chaos. Of course, there's what's been going on in the American political arena for the past couple of months, chaos, uh, disputes, trials, all kinds of <laughs> uh, threats legally, and, uh, th- uh, and, and all aspects of that, the chaos that we're living in. But outside our country, there's ISIS, trouble in Iraq, significant problems in Syria, what's happening in Sudan, ongoing conflicts with Russia, and then moving into our own hemisphere, South America, Bolivia, Venezuela, countries in chaos, on the verge of collapse. This is the world we live in. It's very similar to the world in which Jesus came. Then second, Jesus came into a world of financial confusion. There's several examples of this in the stories of Christmas. First of all, uh, they ordered a census for further taxation, which reveals the greed that was driving governmental policy at the time. There was no room at the end for Jesus, which reveals a callousness and a loyalty to financial gain as opposed to caring for a woman that was pregnant and about to give birth. And then there's this strange story of these magi, wise men, showing up with gold, frankincense, and myrrh, Uh, giving these extravagant gifts that they've brought from a great distance to a little baby uh, in worship of him, to be sure, but nonetheless, extravagantly giving in that context seems so out of step with everything else going on in the world around them. Now, all of these are just simple illustrations of the financial confusion that existed in Jesus' time. Our world is facing similar financial confusion. For example, we pay the wrong people the big money. We pay athletes and entertainers the largest salaries for simply making us happy, for giving us a relief or a release, for doing something that we enjoy watching others do. Uh, We're also confused by consumerism and misplaced priorities. And of course, there is a vast inadequacy between the rich and the poor in our world, and that inadequacy seems to only be growing as fewer and fewer people control more and more of the resources. We live in a world that is financially confused. We are living on borrowed money. Uh, We have the highest amount right now of individual debt ever in American history and of course our nation is in greater debt than it's ever been at any time in its history. We have all of this debt that is just out there and is a looming disaster waiting to crush us and it's just a matter of time before we're going to pay the price for living this way for so long. Our world is in financial confusion. And then Jesus came into a world of spiritual indifference. There were many predictions in the Old Testament of Jesus' coming. For example, it was said that Jesus would come from the throne or line of David in Isaiah nine seven and that was fulfilled in Matthew one. 1. It was said that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem in Micah five two, and of course that was fulfilled in Matthew two one. The time of Jesus' birth was predicted in Daniel nine twenty five and in Luke two 1 and two we see that prophecy fulfilled. Jesus was predicted to be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7:14. and in of course Matthew 1:18 we read that he was born of a virgin. And then the flight to Egypt by the young family was described in Hosea 11:1 and then confirmed in Matthew 2:14. These are just five examples of Old Testament prophecies that pointed to the birth of Jesus, to the nature of his birth, to the time of his birth, to the place of his birth and then to subsequent events after his birth as the family fled for their lives. You would think that in a world that had so much information about when Jesus was going to be born, where he was going to be born, and what was going to happen in the circumstances surrounding his birth, that there would have been a great anticipation about his arrival, and hundreds, if not thousands, or if not millions of people waiting expectantly and watching for him to arrive. That is not what happened. The people expecting Jesus are described in the Bible, and it's a short list. Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth and Zacharias, the shepherds, an unnamed plurality, but certainly not hundreds of them, Simeon and Anna, and the wise men who followed the star. Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth and Zacharias, Simeon and Anna, that's six. Traditionally, Three wise men, we don't know that it was three, but traditionally three wise men, that makes nine, and then the shepherds, a few of them. So let's say around a dozen or so people, that was all that was waiting for the birth of Jesus. Despite all the prophecies about his coming, that's all that showed up in the moment. So just like our world is a place of political turmoil and financial confusion, just like the time of Jesus, our world is spiritually indifferent to Jesus. Jesus was raised from the dead. And that still doesn't get everyone's attention. Wow. Some people in our world have never heard of Jesus. And so therefore they have no opinion about him. Some have reduced what it means to follow Jesus to being a part of a political party or even a religious party, where the word Christian means uh, a group or a or a sect or a content, a, a uh, uh, or, or a political movement in various contexts in the world. Some people have believed in Jesus, but they've become either lethargic or overly intellectual, in meaning that they either see Jesus as a good teacher they want to follow, or they. See him as a a Lord that they kind of want to believe in or kind of want to serve, but they're lethargic in their commitment. Very few people today live as if a resurrected Lord Jesus is alive and a vital and vibrant part of their lives in the moment. Very few live that way today. So when we think about Christmas, sure, the nostalgic aspects of it are fun dragging out old Christmas decorations, listening to music from a previous generation, thinking about how our grandparents or our great-grandparents celebrated the holiday, or even going back into a previous century or even a century before that and thinking about the simplicity of the celebrations that those people must have had and how pristine their lives must have been and how wonderful Christmas must have seemed. Or we can even go all the way back to the time of Jesus and do the same thing, but really when you strip away all of that nostalgia and all of that uh, imaginary, uh, uh, all those imaginary thoughts about what Christmas must have been like, I think when we all go all the way back to the time of Jesus and see the world he came into, we'll see that our world is very similar today. Jesus came to a world of political turmoil, financial confusion, and spiritual indifference. Those same three things are what our world is like today. And so the good news is Jesus still wants to be in this kind of world today. And he came into that kind of world. He wants to be in that kind of world. And get this, he has sent you into that kind of world to make a difference on his behalf. Some Christians today are lamenting, oh, we need a time when politics are better. Oh, we need a time when finances are better. Oh, we need a time when people are more spiritually committed. Jesus would say, That's wishful thinking. There'll never be a time like that. Instead, Jesus says, let's deal with the world as it is. Let's think about reality. And I came into that kind of a world of reality and made a difference. And now I'm still there, and I want you to join me and go into the same kind of world that's politically indifferent, financially confused, spiritually, um, or, or, or political turmoil, financial confusion, spiritually different, and make a significant difference. How can you do that? Well, as you think about Christmas and reflect on what it means and think about going forward this Christmas season, let me challenge you to do three things. Number one. Live the gospel in the real world and demonstrate a transformed life. Don't try to escape the political turmoil, the financial confusion, or the spiritual indifference. Plunge into it and live a transformed life in that what I'll call real-world context or real-world situation. And by doing so, make a significant difference. I have a really good friend, a number of years ago, uh, he got a promotion at work. His boss called him in and said, "Uh, we want to promote you to a significant new responsibility. And in that context of that responsibility, you have to be you have to take on the uh, United Way campaign. Now, if you're not familiar with that, United Way is one of the ways that companies contribute to their local communities. It's a popular thing in many places in the country. And then the community has a board that distributes those United Way funds across the social services and across the uh, need meeting uh, programs of the city, of the community. In many cases, it's really a good thing. But this company participated in United Way, and so he said, you'll have to take the United Way responsibility. That's part of your new job. My friend said, well, that's going to be a problem. He said, uh, in our community, uh, the United Way funds uh, are distributed to abortion providers, to clinics that provide abortions for, for, for young women. And, uh, and I just can't be a part of that. And his boss said, oh, OK, well, I, I understand. Um, well, we'll assign that to somebody else, and, and we'll give you some other responsibilities then. Well, a few months went by. My friend goes to work, and uh, he sees a memo from his boss that says, it's time to kick off the United Way campaign for this year, so you need to get that done this week. <clears throat> My friend said to his boss, wait a second now, I, I thought we talked about this. I can't do this. It's, it's a really serious issue with me. It, it, I don't participate financially in giving to this, and I can't lead our company to do this because – I have a moral conviction about the way the money is used, and I just can't support it. And his boss said, oh, yeah, I remember that conversation. We can, make, we can assign it to somebody else. And then he said, Gary, uh, can I just give you a, a piece of advice? And he said, sure. And he said, your, your problem is you're letting your religion affect your life. And my friend said, I kind of thought that was the point of religion. It was supposed to affect our lives. And then he told me that story, and we've laughed about it over the years. Your problem is you're letting your religion affect your life. Listen, that's exactly what I'm advocating you do. Plunge into the world we're living in, the chaos of it, the difficulty of it, the turmoil of it, the indifference of it. Plunge in and live a transformed life. Look different than the world system around you and the expectations of people around you. Live your transformed life. And when you do that, people are going to say, wow, what you believe, it really affects how you live. And you'll be able to say in response, that's the point. I'm living a transformed life of commitment to Jesus. He came into a world, the kind of world we're living in today, and he sent me to live in that same world, and we're supposed to make a difference. I'm challenging you this Christmas season to learn from the example of Jesus. Plunge into a messed up world, live a transformed life, and make difference. Second, share the gospel. Share the gospel as the power to change lives and share the gospel as the, as the ultimate end result of why Jesus came in the first place. Jesus did not come to a manger in Bethlehem so that we could have candlelit Christmas Eve services. That is not why he came. He came because that was an important step in the process of making the gospel message available to everyone in the world. His incarnation, his sinless life, his matchless death, his fantastic resurrection, all of that started with him coming as a little baby. The gospel is the result of the Christmas story. So as you go forward, yes, it's great to tell the Christmas story, but tell it from a gospel perspective. And as you move away from Christmas, take the gospel into your community as a result of your Christmas experience and share the gospel as the power to change lives. It's what makes the difference. It's the reason for Christmas, and it's the message that we have to take forward from the Christmas story. And then finally, model the gospel in your church and model the gospel in your church as a as a uh, as a community changing strategy and help people understand that the gospel produces the church and the church makes a difference in the world in which we live so there's a connection Christmas produces gospel gospel produces believers believers result in churches and churches are supposed to be in the real world making a transformational difference so Christmas is not a time for escapism. Christmas is not a time to say, oh, I wish we lived in a different time. I wish we lived in a different era. I wish we could go back to better days. I wish we could go back to better times. No, that's not really what Christmas is about. Now, it's fun to have some nostalgia about your celebration and to have some traditions you always practice. And it's certainly fun to have fond memories of bygone days. Nothing wrong with all of that. But if you allow the Christmas season to cause you to lose passion for the world we're living in, you've missed the point of the story. Jesus came into a world that was messed up. Political turmoil, financial confusion, spiritual indifference. That's the world Jesus arrived in back in the day. It wasn't a pristine moment. It wasn't a happier time. It wasn't the good old days. Herod, in all of his political nonsense, his dysfunctional family and the chaos he brought into the world, he was on the prowl. Financial confusion meant that the rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer. That Censuses and taxation were causing people to have to pay out even more. And then spiritually indifferent, there was so much prophecy about the coming of Jesus, and yet nobody even showed up except maybe about a dozen folks who cared enough to be there when it happened. Well... That's the world Jesus came to. That's the real world we live in today. Nothing much has changed, quite frankly, in the way the world operates and the expectations the world has and the people that are running our world. Not much has changed. But Jesus came into that kind of world, and he's still here today. Jesus is not waiting for a better time to work through you, to communicate the gospel in your community, are to demonstrate by your church's transformative ministry how it can impact the world in which we live. Jesus is not waiting for better times before he can do what he wants to do in our world today. So live the gospel. Live a transformed life. Be noticeable, noticeably different in the world in which we're living. Share the gospel. That's the result of the Christmas story. The whole reason for the incarnation was to put Jesus on the path to the cross and the resurrection to make the gospel message possible. And then, as a church and a church you lead, model being an an influence and a difference maker in your community. Churches should not be enclaves of seclusion to try to protect ourselves from the influence of the world. Churches should be oases of sanity and launching pads for ministry that go into a community and make a real difference. I hope you have a blessed Christmas. Hope you have a merry Christmas. I even hope you have a happy Christmas. But I also hope that you have a meaningful Christmas of reflecting on the world in which Jesus came, the world we live in today, the similarities between the two, and how you can make a difference as you lead on.